All right, well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good, all right. Well, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be covering a large section of Scripture today, kind of looking at some high-level things. There's a lot of things we could mine down if we really got into it, like right there at the end where Jeff was reading. That's where the manna winds up getting put into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark doesn't exist yet, but it's, it's coming down the line, and there's manna in it, the Aaron's rods in it, the Ten Commandments go in it, all those things. That's where that comes from. All kinds of details we could get into, but we're going to be kind of high level this morning. So, getting started, how many of you have ever been hangry? Hangry? Are you hangry right now? <laughs> right? Hangry is this idea of being hungry and angry, where it comes together. Some of, well, not some of... Mine and Sarah's biggest fight of all time came in a moment when we were both hangry. It was early on in our marriage. We're still learning one another. And I was like, we're in the Smoky Mountains. I was like, hey, let's go on a hike. She was like, sure, let's go on a hike. I didn't know we needed to take snacks and we were going to be hiking for 13 miles. But apparently she thought you did. And we got hangry. We got hangry and uh, a little bit of a royal rumble after that. But um, this idea of hangry... Where you're hungry, you're angry, you're grumpy, you grumble. This is where we find the Israelites this morning in our continuing trek through Exodus. And the passage that we have before us, there's really three of them. It's kind of a trilogy, like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. We've got three different stories of how we see this hangriness on display and the grumbling that they do. The first one is uh, where they find bitter water. They call the place Mara because Mara means bitterness. If you've read the book of Ruth, students, y'all just finished going through the book of Ruth. There's a character named Naomi. She gets bitter. She says, hey, change my name to Mara. She's looking back on this moment. That's where that comes from. And so you've got this water moment, bitter water, and God provides and makes it into sweet water. And then chapter 17, you've got a story about water again, but instead of it being bitter, it's just that there isn't any. And God strikes a rock, provides miraculously, and there's water. Sandwiched between these two stories about water, you've got chapter 16, and the, the, <clears throat> the, the, the big one, the, the one that's kind of benchmarked throughout all of Scripture and is referred to over and over and over and over. And this is where God provides manna from heaven, miraculously for his people. And we're going to see all through this, I mean, we already kind of talked about it, the, the grumbling nature of the people. But we're also going to see something maybe surprising about God, but it really shouldn't be surprising. The fact that it's surprising is perhaps because of our defective views of God. But before we get into that, since we've been away from Exodus, let me just kind of reset the table of where we're at in Exodus because context is always king and we've got to keep context in mind as we're beginning to, you know, get into these passages where it's not going to hit as hard. It's not going to make as much sense as it should. And so contextually, what's going on is God has rescued the Israelites from generational slavery in a nation that oppressed them, right? That's what has happened. He has rescued them from that. And then He has provided for them. He's guided them by a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. He's walked them through an ocean, right? 
And because it's not just that he rescued them, it's how. So you had all of the plagues, and you've got the last one being Passover, saved by the blood of the Lamb, and the pillar, and the walking through the ocean like I just talked about. And now they are on the other side of the sea, and God takes them on a circuitous route on their way to the promised land. They could have gone a different way, but God takes them out into the wilderness a vast, desolate, arid, not a place that, you know, two million people really want to travel through, and takes them out of the way, not for their salvation. Because He's already saved them. He's already done that. They are out. They've been freed. But He takes them through these valleys and through the wilderness for their sanctification. And it's the same in our lives. The valleys you walk through, the wilderness you find yourself living in. Like we are, the story of Exodus is our story. Because we, like the Israelites, are, are sojourners who've been freed by the blood of the Lamb. We've crossed over to the other side by the grace of God. And now we are sojourning in a wilderness on our way to the promised land. Heaven, new heavens, new earth. Their story is our story. And so there's so much for us to learn from them, our family, for today. And there's two things particularly I want to learn today. Two things that I think are super important. One's about us and one's about God. But I also don't want you to miss the fact that we are entering into a new section of Exodus. This is the second half, not in like numerically by way of chapters, but the first portion, really 1 through 15, is all about deliverance. It's about salvation. But then 16 through 40 is all about sanctification. So we're now into that section. And so we're going to be looking at all kinds of things as it relates to how are we to now live. Now that we've been delivered, how do we now live? That's what's the next from now for couple months to, to come. But this morning in particular, I think there's two things that we need to learn out of this as God is seeking to change us, seeking to sanctify us in our wilderness. One's about us, one's about God. Let's talk about us first. And so look, at, look with me, if you would, at Exodus chapter 15. We're going to read a little bit out of chapter 15, a little bit out of chapter 16, a little bit out of chapter 17, and then we will talk a bit about it. So here we go. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness. All right, so three days, right? God just walked into an ocean. Three days later, they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, and the people grumbled against Moses three days later. Grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Like God's provided for him over and over and over and over and over. Now, met with a new thing, right? Scared. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. If you've ever been to a foreign country, you know what it's like, like where you can't drink water and you're always kind of thinking about, oh, what should I drink here? What should I not drink here? You know, it'd be really nice if we could just throw a stick into the water and it'd make it clean. But that feeling, that's what they had. And God provided for them. 
chapter 16, verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So now we're six weeks removed from walking through the ocean. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're saying, remember Passover when the angel of death passed through and killed everyone? But we had our meat pots and we had all the bread. I wish we just died then because this is terrible what you're doing. Verse 4, Then the word said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, real quick, this is, just, this is the Sabbath. He's all, like The Sabbath pre-exists before the Ten Commandments. It's a creation order. Seventh day, he rested. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know, as if you didn't, that the Lord who brought you out of the land, it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because He has heard your grumbling. Emphasis on that word, against the Lord, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, because he gives them quail this one time, and in the morning bread to the full, and he does that for 40 years, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Skip over to chapter 17 now. Verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of seeing by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the people, or cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Again, after all that God, God had done and shown them, is the Lord among us or not? And so all of these passages are just kind of calling to light uh, one of the main themes of the entire book that we've talked about several times. And it's that God always, always, always keeps His promises. 
He always does. He's going to get them to the promised land. He's going to do that. But God almost never keeps His promises how we might expect, how we might anticipate, how we might wish. He keeps His promises, but not how we might expect. And I mean, you can see this here. You can see this in your own life. What God's done, how He's kept His promises, but maybe not how you expected it. And so in this, these stories, we see people just like us who are confronted with the reality that God's way is different than their way. That they are not in control of their lives. And their reaction to that, like when hard times come or unforeseen circumstances come into their lives, things don't go the way they expect them or anticipate. Their reaction to that, just like our reaction, is to grumble and to complain. This is what the passage teaches us about us. It teaches us, number one, in your notes, that our natural reaction, our natural reaction to hard circumstances, our sinful, fallen reaction, is grumbling. You know this. You feel this. You do this. This is what we do. We are fallen. We grumble. Now, we may push back against it. We may fight against it. But our first emotion, our first inclination is to grumble, is to complain. And you would think, like by this point, that the people would get that their first inclination should probably be to pray. To cry out to the Lord. He's provided over and over and over and over and over and over and over. But then again, you would think our first inclination, our first response would be to pray. But so often we don't. We choose to respond to these situations with fear and anxiety versus trusting in the sovereign God who is going to do what He says He's going to do even if it doesn't look the way we might expect. And we often treat grumbling and complaining like, why are we going to talk about that? Why don't we talk about big sins, sexual sin, uh, idolatry, hatred, greed, and racism. We don't talk about grumbling and complaining. We treat that like a respectable sin. There are sins that we, we, we gradiate and we have some that are respectable. Like being a workaholic. Well, that's not good, but actually that's kind of good. Like we, we, we do these things. We treat and have respectable sins and we do that with this one. But grumbling and complaining, I mean, Paul calls it out in Philippians chapter 2. Like we had our kids memorize this as children. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. But it's not just the kids that need to memorize that. It's you and I. And so if it's commanded in Scripture, do all things without grumbling and complaining, to not do that would then be what? To not obey a commandment would be what? Sin. Grumbling and complaining like this is sinful. 
And so we must make war on this natural inclination of our heart because we're fallen. This natural just comes up in us. And we must make war by remembering who God is. The Israelites didn't do that. Remembering like what He's done. The Israelites didn't do that. And remembering what He's promised to do. The Israelites didn't do that either. That's how we make war. We remember His character. We remember what He's done. We remember His promises. We make war on this. But the main point of this trilogy of stories we have here isn't so much on like us and our grumbling. The focus is far more on God's response to our grumbling. And our wrong thoughts about the love of God as we sing, it's deeper than we could ever imagine. I mean, all the songs this morning were about love. I don't know if you picked up on that. Every single one of them was about love. And our wrong thoughts about God's love, we, we sing about it being all of this wonderful stuff and it's unconditional and it's deeper than you could ever imagine, but we functionally live as if <clears throat> it's conditional. As if it vacillates based upon how we're living. We're obeying God, man, He really does love us. And if, he, if we're disobeying God and grumbling and complaining, man, He doesn't really love us. This says, that's false. And in fact, not just this, the whole rest of the Bible says that's false. And so, number two in your notes, we'll just go ahead and talk. God's natural reaction to even our grumbling isn't anger, that we might think. It's grace. And it's mercy. Now, he may respond in a myriad of ways. There's discipline and there's justice and all that. But his, his heart, his first feeling, his first emotion, because he's not falling, we are, is love and grace and mercy for his people. And he gives the grumblers manna, like yummy honey wafers. Far better than those little wafers in our, when we take the word supper, those things that dissolve in your mouth like cotton candy, but they taste like styrofoam. <laughs> he gives them water, sweet water, and then water from a rock. See, God has justice. We, we get that. I think we really get that. I think we don't get as much how rich He is in grace and mercy. You look at Ephesians 2, verse 4. It is the only place in all of Scripture where God is described as being rich in one specific attribute. And it says, He is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. Which means that God is far more gracious and merciful than we think He is. And as one pastor put it then, the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. We don't get how good He is. We don't get how loving He is, how merciful He is, how gracious He is. Friends, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not just waiting for you to, to, to do something and then pounce on you. He's not harsh, reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's been tempted in every way as we have yet without sin. He is the most patient and understanding person ever. 
And we've got to change a view in our head from him with his finger pointed to his arms open. That's his natural place. Does he point fingers at times? Yes. What is his first heart impulse? Arms open. And this rubs us the wrong way a little bit. We're like, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable that God's love could really be that good. It could really be, no, it couldn't really be that good. It just feels a little antinomian here. What are we, what are, what are, I, I don't like this. I mean, I do, but I don't. It feels wrong. And I think part of this is because evangelicalism, or whatever you want to call it, has kind of fallen, sunk to a place where it's become a higher theological priority to herald the harder parts of biblical truth than just basking in the noonday sun of the gospel's promises. The forgiveness that is ours. The love that has been shed broadly, like we're saying, like a flood. To remember just the goodness of God. We talk about harder things and this and that, and we've got a war against this and this and this, and forget to just glory in who God is, His love and His mercy. He's rich in it. His graciousness. His loving kindness. I mean, Exodus is teaching us, chapter 34 talks about God is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Like, that's what Exodus is teaching us, because it's not a story about Moses, it's a story about God. And this is who He is. Gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And He's not just in the skies, like, tolerating you. He's not constantly disappointed with you. He loves you. And if we would live, like you can live two ways. You can live for the love of God, trying to earn it, or you can live from the love of God. It's been given to you, now therefore go and live. And when you live from the love of God, you understand how He sees you in Christ. It will change the way you live. You won't live with that constant worldly guilt. There's a godly guilt, conviction, wanting, you know, seeking to follow, but there's a worldly guilt that comes in where we just self-loathe because of our sin. It is for freedom that you've been set free, Galatians tells us. Not bondage to your self-loathing, because even that's prideful. It's prideful because it's self-focused. It's not others-focused. When we have this view of God as constantly disappointed in us, irritable, barely tolerating it, that is a defective unbiblical view of God. And it's far too prevalent in me and in you. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. It is the best book I have read in the last 20 years. I'm trying to get a copy for free for every single member of the church. If we do, we will hand these things out. 
working on that. He describes our defective views of God like this. Our naturally decaffeinated views of God's heart might feel right because we're being stern with ourselves, not letting ourselves off the hook too easily. Such sternness feels appropriately morally serious. But this deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect Scripture's testimony about how God feels towards His own. God is, of course, morally serious far more than you are. But the Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that His heart for us waves according to our loveliness. God's heart confounds our intuitions. Similarly, he also writes previously in the book, the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. We need a Bible to show us that's not the case. Because God is not like us. His Word tells us what He is like. And it tells us that His heart, His natural reaction, His first impulse toward His people, grumpy as they may be, is spring-loaded towards love, towards grace, towards mercy, because that's who He is. Like, if you've ever read your Bible, you'll come to places in Scripture where you read, and God was provoked to anger. That's, that's in there a lot, actually. God is provoked to anger. You will never find in Scripture where God has to be provoked to love. You will never find in Scripture where He has to be provoked to give mercy. Where He has to be provoked to give grace. That is who He is. He flows with those things. It's a flood of those things. He lavishes those things upon us. His anger requires provocation. His grace and mercy and love do not. That's His first impulse. That's His first emotion. I mean, God loves to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. Like, that's kind of the whole point of the Bible. That's why it's called good news. We don't get what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But grace, that's why it's both of them, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's an unmerited favor, an unearned blessing. And so Jesus came, remember, to rescue sinners. Not the righteous. But actually, there aren't any righteous. We're all sinners. And so friends, let us maybe return to our first love a bit. 
remember and bask in the noonday sun of God's grace and forgiveness, this simple truths of the Bible that aren't so simple, that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. This is what is so confounding. Jesus actually really does love you. He really does. We we don't, it's hard for us to believe that because we know how jacked up our hearts are, our lives are, our minds are, and we know God sees that better than we do. He sees the sin in a life that we don't even see. So how could he possibly love us? But he does. Because you've been united, if you have, to Christ. You are now blameless and holy. Not because of what you did, but because of Christ. And so you are loved as much as God loves His Son. Because you are in His Son. This is what union with Christ is about. This is why it's so astounding and ridiculous. And hard to believe. Too good to be true, except it's true. How do I know? Because the Bible says it over and over and over. And so God's first reaction towards us, towards His people, is grace and mercy. Even in our stumbling, our stubborn grumbling. A grace and a mercy that loves us right where we're at, but loves us too much to leave us there. He will change us. He will sanctify us. He will take us into the wilderness to chip away, sometimes sledgehammer away, those things in our life that He wants to remove. He's got them out of Egypt. He's got to get Egypt out of them. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is reflecting back on this event because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And in Deuteronomy 8, reflecting back on this moment, he talks about how the bread, the wonder bread that God gave them wasn't just about filling their bellies, but it was about teaching them spiritually. And so he writes chapter 8, verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, and that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God's not just trying to fill their bellies. He's trying to shepherd them spiritually. And so the first portion of God's grace, if, if God responds as natural reaction to our grumbling is grace and mercy, where well, the first way we see God's grace is through, and this is letter A, God's grace of provision. He did this for 40 years, every day. And it's the same in your life. God provides even when you don't deserve it, which is always. 
And He provides exactly what you need as He's seeking to mold and shape and care for you. Sarah and I always thought that, you know, just probability, statistic-wise, uh, we, you know, we have four girls. If you do the permutation or combination on the statistics of that likelihood, it's probably low. We always assumed we'd probably have, you know, one boy. And we always planned on, like, we'd picked out some names. And one of, the son, one of our, if we had a son, we were going to name him Haddon. And the reason we're going to name him Haddon is that comes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Let me read you a quote of Charles Spurgeon reflecting on this passage. And you'll see, I don't want you to say, I mean, you'll see how he's the Prince of Preachers with his phraseology. But more than that, I want you to just hear what, 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 he's, what he's telling us about God. So Spurgeon, late 1800s, said this, God desired then to teach, teach them himself by the gift of manna, and he taught them first his care over them, that he was their God, and they were his people and he would lay himself out to provide for them. And remember, their story is our story. So this is true of us. And continue on, continues on. Think of the care that God had over them. For each man had his own omer of manna. That's daily allotment. No woman or child was forgotten. Every morning there was sufficient quantity for every person according to his daily needs for that day. And there was never more and never less. So carefully did God take care of each individual. Now, listen to this. We talk so much, and rightly so, about the corporate nature of God's love for his people. But it also extends to the individual. And so listen to this. The individuality of the divine love is a great part of the sweetness of it. God thinks of every separate child of His as much as if He had only that one. That's how God loves you if you are in Christ Jesus. That's how He takes care of you. The multiplicity of His elect does not divide the loaf of His affection. He has an infinite affection for each one and He will take care of the details of each chosen life. He will see your omer filled precisely to the ounce. He will give you all you possibly need, but He will give you nothing that you can lay by to minister to your pride. Is that not good? But the best part of it is that it's true. And God is teaching them but he's teaching them from a heart of grace and mercy, not punishment. And so the first lesson of them is his care. Not just filling their bellies, shepherding their hearts. And so we see God's grace of provision. Letter B, we see God's grace of sanctification. God's grace of sanctification. Like he's providing for them. He's doing that for 40 years. But he does give them some rules with it. And it's not just because he wants to see if they're good at Simon Says. It's because he's, again, he's shepherding their hearts. He's training them to trust him. And the manna and what he gives, the rules for it, how you collect it, are part of that training. Because think about it, just real quick. How many of you have a garden in the summer? 
Got a garden in the summer. So when your crops come in, crops, I know they're just vegetables, but let's just go with crops. <laughs> so when your crops come in, what do you do? You pick them, right? You pick them all, right? Now, expanding that to like a true farm, when the wheat comes in, when the barley comes in, when the corn comes in, like what do you, you harvest it. You harvest it all. And you can or you put up for the winter when there's not crops what you harvested so that you have food then. This is an agrarian society. This is what Israel is used to. And God's saying, hey, in this case, I don't want you to do that. I only want you to get each day what I put out there. And I don't want you to get more. In fact, if you get more, it's going to get worms in it and it's going to rot and it's going to stink because I want you to trust me. Each day, I will put out that, and each day, I want you to go get that and trust that I'll do it tomorrow, and trust that I'll do it the next day, and trust that I'll do it the next day, and trust that I'll do it the next day. Because the struggle in trusting the sovereign provision of the Lord is a struggle between fear. You struggle with fear? You struggle with anxiety? It's a struggle between fear and faith. Are they going to believe what God has told them? I will do this thing. Or are they going to think that they know better, that they need to you know, make up their own rules? Well, God's not controlling this the way I think He should, so I better try to grab control of this, and then I'll be happy, then I'll be comfortable, then I'll feel good because I've got everything in control. And He's saying, in this case, I don't want you to do that. You don't have control. You're going to trust that tomorrow I'll provide. And then the next day I'll provide. He's training them. He's sanctifying them. And it's the same for us. He takes you into the valley. He takes you into the wilderness to change you. And I want you to also note, how long did He train them? Forty years. Sanctification is a lifelong process. You will never get to that place where you're like, I'm good. If you did do, we need to start over. If you don't think there's anything wrong with you, or it's a false humility, man, everything's so wrong with me. You say that outside, but inside you're like, I'm always right. Everybody just needs to see that. You've got a lot to work on. God's changing of us is a lifetime process. And so through this trilogy of stories that we see, as well as just experientially in our own lives, we can see God's grace and His provision. Provided here, He's provided in your life. We can see God's grace and His sanctification. He's changing them, He's changing us. But we most clearly, number letter C, we most, and letter B was God's grace of sanctification, if you didn't get that. Letter C, most clearly, we see God's grace in our lives in the gift of Jesus. In the gift of Jesus. Because He is the bread of life. He is the true and better rock that was struck for our salvation. I mean, this whole story is a foreshadowing, a pushing and looking forward that in Christ, God provides everything we need to be saved, to be sanctified, to be rescued, to be given freedom and salvation fully 
freely, finally, and forever. And that His grace and His mercy, while there's that one time that you receive it, it is new every morning. Just like the manna was out there every morning. So God's mercies are new every morning. And Jesus tells us this is all about Him. Jesus says in John chapter 6, He's just fed the 5,000. He's just walked on the water. The people come to Him and they say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And you know Jesus had to be like... (laughs) But they ask that. What work do you perform? Verse 31, chapter 6, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you, who gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the true and better manna that provides life eternally. Not just day by day, which He does. All things are in His hands, but He provides life eternally. You eat this manna, you're going to need it again tomorrow. You receive salvation from Jesus. You are signed, sealed, delivered. And He does this because He is the true and better rock of Exodus 17. That was struck one time and out of which flowed their salvation. They were thirsting to death. And Jesus likewise was struck one time. And out of Him flowed our salvation. These stories are foreshadowing God's greatest gift of grace. 1 Corinthians makes this connection for us. I'm not making this up. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the pillar, And all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. And so friends, the evidence of God's grace and mercy in your life aren't the circumstances of your life. It's the truth of who God is and who Christ is and what Christ has done. That He was mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned eternally in your place. And that means, if, like, think about it, if God sent His own Son through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust Him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to the promised land. Through your own wildernesses. If He sent His Son into that, you can trust Him in those ways. And that's really the main takeaway this morning. Trust God in His working and waiting You're wandering. He is sanctifying. And so trust Him for your daily 
provision. His provision for your daily needs. Trust Him. And trust Him, the provision that He gives for your deepest needs. Jesus is the true and better manner. Whoever comes to Christ shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Him shall never thirst. He is the true and better rock struck once for your salvation. With grace and mercy that now floods and flows with no end. In a way that's almost too good to be true. Except that it is. And so let us bask in the noonday sun of God's grace and His mercy and His love for you. Sometimes the simple things are the most important things. Let's pray. Father, we struggle to believe that you truly love us this much because there's, well, we don't love anyone this much. We don't think it's possible. Our love at its best is still even quasi conditional. We always think about what it means for us. We'll sacrifice to great lengths for those we love. But that's that's only a microscopic comparison of the love that you have for us that we can't fathom, O oh King of love. And so help us, God, to run to you. Run to you. To your love to your grace and to see you rightly not defectively change our hearts change our minds and let us therefore be changed and live from your love and not trying to live for it in Jesus name Amen